Welcome back to the Psychotist Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is Tuesday, February 22nd. It's a lot of twos in today's date, actually. Two, 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 zero, two, two. It's that day. And, and two, it's two, a two, Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And it's a Tuesday. Wait, wow. wait until 20, 22 p.m. Oh, man. I'm excited. <laughs> well, we are, <laughs> we've got a great show for you today. Still missing some uh, some key folks. Abby's out this week. Dane's out this week. But we've got Shoddy Dave. How are you, Shoddy? I'm good. Just been hanging down the front on with my daughter. That big pink wall that you get in the basket area for playing that ball game. And uh, somebody rocked up with a bunch of crepes. So I'm filled up for today. Ooh. Nobody ever rocks up with crepes where I live. That's a, It's really unfortunate. It's pancakes Ronan? in the States, isn't How's- it? Well, kind of. They're like little skinny, thin pancakes. Not quite the same. Ronan, how's the leg? I the leg is good. I'm I'm having a real good day. I did something I haven't done for a long time this morning. I exercised with such vigor and intensity that I broke out in a sweat. It was Ooh. fantastic. <laughs> uh, what type of exercise were you on? Like uh, on the trainer? Or what are you doing? It was lifting. Swifting. I, I almost completed a lap of the New York Knickerbocker lap that will be used in the eSports World Championships on Saturday. I feel like we should have you uh, lead some group rides right now so that people can have this moment to beat Ronan. I think that would be kind of fun. The beat Ronan group rides. I, I, it would be so easy. I don't think there would be any fun. <laughs> How many watts? How many watts can we do with a leg and a half? Not very many. I think I was doing like 100 and, and feeling like a real effort. It's okay. Well, well Ronan, you did, didn't you do a big article on how to cheat on Zwift or how people are cheating on Zwift? You can kind of well, combine the two. Actually, you know, we did an article, but we didn't want to create a how-to guide. So I've still got all the secret information for myself to use. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Oh, my goodness. How is Ronan still putting out 430 watts on one leg? It's amazing. <laughs> uh, I think I mentioned, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the podcast last time. Last time I rode Zwift, my trainer was off by a lot. And so I was just like cruising around at like 420 watts. So of course I just left it on there until I took a KOM. Then I then I left. <laughs> <laughs> does does that cage around so, your leg uh, add much weight to you? Then when you're wearing yourself for getting the the, the, the right Zwift weighing rules. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but I've never I've never seen the numbers that I'm currently seeing on the scale. So I'm telling myself it's the frame. <laughs> <laughs> and of course we've got James. How are you, James? I'm doing okay, aside from the fact that I forgot that I was actually podcasting today because I apparently misread that Slack message. Oops. Mm. Oh, well. But I'm here Well, now. we pulled you in. We pulled you in. We've got quite a lot to talk about because bike racing is fully back, and we've got, well, what some would call opening weekend this weekend. We've got on loop this weekend. So we're going to talk about what has happened over the last week, plus what's happening coming up. And in this week's Nerd Nugget, all about chamois, thick and thin, and saddles and thick and thin. And anyway, James will explain later. <laughs> we'll get into that at the end of the show. Let's kick off with some news. So we've got we've got a bunch of races that happened recently. We've got Ruta del Sol. We've got well, what used to be called Hotvar, which is now called Tour des Alpes Maritimes et du Var. Should we just call it Hotvar anyway? I think that's probably fine. Uh, We've got Algarve and all sorts of interesting stuff happening there with Fabio Jakobsen and Remco Venepol. And the UAE Tour is going on right now. And a clash of the sprinters. 
Cav is there winning some bike races. Uh, I think we should talk a little bit about Cav and, and what to do about Cav and, and Jakobsen at some point. We've also got Valencia. We've got some other news around the Tour of Flanders, which is going to be providing equal prize money for the men's and women's races, which is awesome. A little IOC news. We know people love IOC news. And a brief mention of Omloop this weekend. We'll do a little preview for you later in the show. So let's get into it. So let's let's kick off with Ruta del Sol. Ronan, you've watched a lot of bike racing over the last couple days. I believe you watched every minute of all of these. So we're going to turn to you a little bit. Miguel Angel Lopez is is pulling some Miguel Angel Lopez stuff. A uh, little, little reminiscent of, of maybe some Movistar Trident type activities. What's, what's going on here? Uh, he, perhaps even a little reminiscent of when he last left Astana before he even went to Movistar. That as well. There, there was a bit of a falling out there as well, wasn't there? But in and, and, and Lopez's defense, I think this time he was actually, you know, slightly right, or it was right to be slightly aggrieved and that's, I think it was stage four, the stage one by White Poles, where he eventually took the the overall lead in the in, in GC and, and went on to win the stage the race outright. Lopez was actually the leader on the road for that stage for you know for most of it. There was a, a very, very select breakaway that had went clear. Uh before that we had Covey from the UAE team who was who was in the yellow jersey, but he had missed the break. And Lopez being the next best in GC was, you know, standing to go in, not only go into the yellow jersey, but actually take a lead that, you know, he probably would have sustained the whole way to the finish on the on the subsequent stage. But uh with you know, by twenty kilometers to go in the on stage four, we started seeing a lot of attacking in that lead group. And Lutsenko, Lopez, a standard teammate, was doing quite a bit of that attacking uh, and managed to force himself clear with White Polos, who was a threat to uh, Lopez GC ambitions. Uh, and then not only got clear with Polos, but actually, you know, pulled quite hard and, and did quite a lot of the work that he didn't have to do in the lead up to the finish and then went and didn't win the stage. He got beat in the sprint by Polos. So, you know, it was already... That know, takes some doing, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it was already questionable to be working with, you know, one of his teammates' uh, biggest rivals for the GC win, but then to uh, not take the stage win, yeah, that's that's asking for trouble. And I think there, you know, there's potentially a clash of um, leadership ambitions within Astana here, and that you know Lopez obviously sees himself as GC leader for the team now, and you know has you know, rightfully got his ambitions set for, for later later in the year at the Grand Tours and, and was one of the strongest riders in Ruta del Sol. One stage, two in convincing style, up a steep finish. Uh, for anybody that hasn't seen it, it's worth going on YouTube and, and just watching the shoulder charge that Lopez delivered to one of them, his former movie star teammates in the final few hundred metres to win that stage. It was it was pretty gnarly, so it was. There was no certainly no love lost. Uh, so he was going well. And then Lutsenko, who's obviously in great form as well, has said he wants to target a Tour de France podium. And, you know, clearly the two of them just didn't see eye to eye on tactics on, on Saturday's stage, stage four. And uh, following the stage then, Lopez took to Twitter, uh, retweeted an Astana team tweet, you know, mentioning that uh, Lutsenko was second on stage and Lopez added the comment himself, great work today, team, or something to that effect. I can't remember the exact wording. <laughs> Uh, he quickly deleted that tweet, but yeah, um, some of the cracks starting to open already uh, there. For the, you know, we, we've seen Lopez involved in these sorts of inter-team issues previously, I think, and 
uh, perhaps we're about to see a repeat. But but this, like you said, this one this this one seems like he's right. I mean, he, well, he is right. He like Astana came out not winning the bicycle race because of this somewhat boneheaded move from from Lutsenko, who, like you said, didn't even win the stage. So you know, I think I think we can say that. Yes, Lopez tends to be involved in these things. He's been involved in a number of them over the years with a number of different teammates. But in this particular instance, uh, that was that was Lutsenko being kind of an idiot. Yeah, and you know, Lutsenko ultimately cost himself the stage as well, being so willing to to work. You know, he, he could have even just worked with with Poz enough to establish an advantage and then start playing the Lopez card behind and, and use that to sit on, save his legs and, and go for the stage victory. But ultimately he you know, he was already out of GC and he missed out on a, on a stage one. So I'm sure it was a, a interesting team meeting in the hotel that evening. It's unfortunate we don't get a Astana documentary like we got Movistar documentaries. <laughs> that would have been fun. Alas, well, we'll leave that one aside. Just a bit of silliness, a bit of bad tactics, which we tend to see some bad tactics early in the year. New teammates, not really sure who's doing what. But that was a particularly bad instance. Let's move on to the Tour des Alpes-Maritimes et du Var. Haute Var is what it was called for decades. So we'll probably accidentally refer to it as that numerous times. Now, there's a couple storylines that come out of Haute Var. Nairo, I think, is maybe the, the biggest one from a GFC perspective. Nairo Quintana, for the last... Actually, he's done this a couple times recently. Last year, certainly. Where he's had great early season... Uh, and not necessarily able to turn that into a great middle or later season, but he won the, the overall at Hotvar, Tortoise Alps, Maritime, A Duvar, by a minute and a half over Tim Wellens, as well as taking stage wins. So Quintana's kind of on a roll. He is, and he was fantastic to watch over the weekend, both uh, Saturday and Sunday, uh, stage two and stage three of Hotvar. He... He went on the attack both days. Uh, on the Saturday stage, he was caught by Tim Wellens just over a kilometer to go, if I recall correctly. And then Tim Wellens beat him in the sprint, as you might expect. Uh, but on Sunday, he attacked with a long way to go. The, the final climb was a, topped out at about 30, 35 kilometers before the finish. And Quintana was happy enough to to go solo on that climb, bridge across to a leading group. Uh, and then he proceeded to drop um, Pino, Thibaut Pino, on the descent, uh, again, might not be no surprise, uh, but he dropped Pino on the descent and soloed to uh, emphatic victory uh, on, on both the stage and the overall. Uh, and, you know, in vintage Quintana style, you might you might say both, you know, blustering uphill and phenomenal downhill as well. He's just a really fun bike racer to watch, I think. You know, I think he got, to, he got a lot of stick over the last couple of years for sitting in a lot, right? Uh, I personally, particularly at the Tour de France, and particularly at, at big, big, big races, I personally think that that was, ba- that was mostly because that's all he could do the last couple of years. Because whenever he is on good form and whenever he's he's feeling good and feeling frisky, this is how he races, right? We've seen it numerous times. We see him attack on the way up. We see him attack on the way down. He's a, he's a classy bike rider, and, and he is, like I said, when he is fit, when he is at the top of whatever peloton he's in, he makes for really exciting racing. He's looking particularly skinny, I thought, at the moment as well. More so than normal, which is saying something. We've seen him at the start of the season, well, previous years, 2020 sort of ride like this. Admittedly, 2020 
we didn't see what he was capable of uh, later on in the year because, well, races were all iggledy-piggledy due to a certain thing we won't bang on about. So it's going to be interesting to see if this sort of start to the season does bode well later on in the year for him. Fingers crossed it does, because like I say, he's awesome to watch racing when he is like the Quintana of old. But I'm just that the team that I've never felt the team is sort of strong enough around him, even though it's a, even though it's a a, a pro Conti team that's got a, well, quite a fair chunk of money behind it. It's probably, out, I think it's about 13 million euro budget, but I don't think it rides yeah. out the 13 million euro budget. <laughs> probably spends half it on Quintana. Yeah, a lot of that probably goes to Quintana and, and they just turned down an invite to the Giro. You know, they're, they're one of those teams, we talked about the, the promotion relegation battle last week a little bit. They're one of those teams that's kind of on the bubble inside. So the, the, the Giro, turning down the Giro was interesting to me. I mean, they, they must figure they can either get more points elsewhere or it's just too much on their program or... Yeah, it's it's an interesting decision. To me, it's actually an indicator of something slightly different in that you know, when Quintana announced that he was moving from Movistar to Arkea Samsek, there, there was a couple of question marks about him dropping down from world tour level. And you know, so far, for a variety of different reasons, it hasn't really been that much of an impact to Quintana. But I think this year, even in Quintana's own heart of hearts, he would say the tour is not really a course best suited to him. And the Giro with just 26 kilometers of time trialing is a course well suited to him, given all the mountains that are involved also. But I think it's a case of Arkea Samsic being a French team, they simply have to be on form for the tour. And if they send a team, their best team to support Quintana at the Giro, then the French team isn't going to be in the best position to perform at their home Grand Tour of the Tour de France. And I, you know, I think even though it probably would deliver many more UCI points if Quintana could go and perhaps, you know, podium the Giro, won a couple of stages. Um, but it just comes back to that fact. It's French team, French sponsor. They have to perform well in Tour de France. They, they, you know, they have to target that first and foremost, and then they can follow up for the Vuelta. This clearly speaks to what we spoke about last week with regards to the, the World Tour relegation points teams moving up from Pro Conti to World Tour and World Tour down. It's clearly, for Arkea uh, Samsek, the tour, like we said last week, is the showcase of, the, of the, the cycling world. That's where the sponsorship money needs to be spent. And it doesn't matter if you're going to get more UCI points at uh, the Giro. If you win it, then come in, I don't know, fifth, sixth, seventh at the tour. Right. Well, And it's also a pretty good argument for not becoming a World Tour team because they... And continue to decline invites to things like the Giro, right? <laughs> Whereas if they're a World Tour team, they have to go to the Giro. They don't have to go to Strada because Strada is under this funny loophole where any race became World Tour after 2016, you can still say no to. And it feels weird, but yeah, Strada only became a World Tour race in 2017. So they can say no to stuff like that, uh, but World Tour team has to go to the Giro. And, and obviously, Arkea doesn't really see any value in that. So th- there's reasons to not be a world tour team as well. Last narrow thought. I've kind of like a, like a pet theory here, a little, no real data behind this, <laughs> but my, my narrow theory is that part of the reason why he's so good in the early season is he goes home to Columbia. He goes to altitude. He trains at altitude, you know, throughout the winter comes back. And in general, 
is coming back into a field full of racers who mostly haven't spent much time at altitude yet. Some of them have. There's been some riders at Tenerife and then things like that. But for the most part, most of the peloton has not done their big altitude camps yet. And so he has that altitude advantage, which is the same reason why I think he was so good back in 2012, 2013, right? We had this sort of interesting lull at that time between, well, let's put it this way. The biopassport had just been implemented and teams had not yet figured out the sort of full value of, of big altitude training camps, which, which really came into popularity in, in sort of the 2014, well, 2013, 2014, 2015, really, uh, led by Team Sky. But most of the teams were, were a fair ways behind at that point and weren't doing big altitude camps. And so Nairo's sort of natural altitude advantage was larger in 2012-2013 than, than it has been since then. And I think that that's part of the reason why we see him, again, so good in the early season because it's essentially it's the same thing, right? He gets his altitude bump when the rest of the peloton does not yet have it. I think it's also why we haven't seen him as good at the Tour de France where everybody who wants to be at the front of the Tour de France spends a couple weeks at altitude prior to, prior to the start. Anyway, that's my, that's my little... That's my little theory about Nairo. I think, I think a lot of his peaks and troughs in form can be tied to his own sort of altitude native uh, physiology, which, I mean, like, you know, I wasn't personally, I wasn't born at altitude, but having lived here a long time, I certainly adapt to it a lot faster than I used to. And so I, I, I assume that, you know, the Colombians are, are that many times more so. But yeah, I... I that's, that's my theory anyway. Kaylee, I think a lot of people who are listening to the pod right now probably have maybe either probably haven't spent a lot of time at altitude in the sense that like they haven't lived at altitude for any period of time, really. Um, how would you describe? I mean, so you and I know what it feels like to be at altitude and then come down to sea level, right? Feel like so, Superman. Yeah. Well, how, I was going to say, how would, what would you describe that feeling to be like? Yeah. I mean, well, in terms of numbers, my my sort of threshold power goes up like 30 plus watts. It's like, it's massive, right? I live at about 6,500 feet. So what's that, 2,000, just around 2,000 meters. And like little, like 1,800 meters, 1,850 or something like that. And yeah, if I go down to, to sea level, it's just an automatic, immediate bump in the, sort of the amount of power I can produce for, for long periods of time. And you recover faster, way faster. Like I used to go down, Back in the in my old in the old racing days, I used to, used to go down to sea level to race crits, for example. And essentially, my legs couldn't keep up with my lungs, right? So I would just thrash myself and like wake up the next day, and I would have the sorest like leg muscles that I have ever experienced bike racing because essentially my my aerobic system allowed my muscles to do more work than they were used to. It's part of the reason why people. They, they say train low, sleep high, right? So you sleep high and get the, the altitude benefits, but you actually train low because you can then produce the power that you're going to have to produce in, in a bike race. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an astonishing, uh, it's, it's, it's an astonishing difference between being up here and being down there. It's the same reason why, like, doing Zwift races up here sucks. <laughs> just, just lop 30 watts off the top just straight away. That's why I don't feel too bad about my my phony trainer giving me extra watts <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's it's massive it's massive and that's 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 why every single rider at the front of the tour front spends a bunch of weeks at altitude ahead of the race it's also why 
like I said, I think there was this sort of like narrow band where the Colombians had this big advantage. Uh, I think you could also argue, although this one's a little bit sketchier to argue, I think you could also argue that this is part of the reason why the Colombians were so good in the 70s and 80s. And then when EPO took hold, they essentially lost their advantage. And Because then everyone lived at altitude. Exactly. Air quotes. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, like, if you know, if you can only get a 60 60 percent hematocrit, 60 point hematocrit, and you're an altitude native, so you're naturally at 57, then you can only dope yourself three points. <laughs> Whereas if you're at 45, you can dope yourself 15. Uh, again, that that's a that's a more tenuous line to draw for sure. But I, I, there's probably something to that, like the the sort of like I said, peaks and troughs of of altitude natives within pro cycling. I think you can also tie to what the other things that are happening within the peloton. Anyway, we can move on from Nairo. We can move on from Nairo. We've got we got a little bit of a, a handlebar controversy, Ronan. This is right up your street. In fact, you wrote this story. Tim Wellens just wants to puppy paw. That's all he wants. He just wants to puppy paw. What's going on? He does, yeah. Tim Wellens of Lado Sudal, who it should be said were the other big winners at. Uh, how far? Uh, Caleb Ewan won stage one, quite convincing in the sprint. Tim Wellens won stage two, finished up second overall in GC. Uh, but it was in that stage two that Tim Wellens won that I happened to notice when he moved his hands away from the bars that he had these, you know, quite padded areas directly behind his uh, DI2 levers. And it just sort of struck me as odd. And yeah, jumped on the interweb and started zooming in on a few photos and things and noticed that it was only directly behind the levers that he had this extra padding. And then I started looking for a few more photos and you know rewatching clips and that. And it seems to be some sort of aid to help him get into a let's not say a puppy pause position, because I think that's the sort of invisible arrow bars thing where you're dangling your hands in front of the handlebars with you know very little control or grip on the handlebars. What Tim Wellens is doing, he's still got full grip of both levers, still has access to his brakes, but he's managing to get his arms into that, his forearms into that horizontal position which is, you know, much more aerodynamic than if you have them at a at a higher angle. So um, it's certainly one of those that, in my opinion, is, you know, he's not causing any danger to any other riders. He's not really doing anything wrong. But the problem is, by the letter of the law, the UCI regulations, he is breaking the rule on the use of forearms, which is ridiculous, but that's where we stand. But this isn't really a new position at all. I mean, he just happens to be making it more comfortable or sustainable, I guess, for him. But I mean, I use this position all the time. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, it's not a new position. The thing for me, though, is that it's, you know, when you go to the the extent of adding in some extra padding to make it more sustainable and, you know, you turn it into a premeditated, you know, tactic that you're going to use to enable the solo breakaways that Tim Wellens is so good at or in this case, chasing down Nairo Quintana solo for a stage victory, you know, then you got to ask the question, well, what is the difference between that, the the padding added in before he started the race to help him in that position, and the Spico aero bars that Jan Willem van Schip had used last year? Yes, they are radically different. The section of the forearm that is in contact with the bar is, it's the entire forearm using the Spico bars. And I don't think many people were too disappointed when they got banned from the peloton. But... The UCI regulations don't determine a percentage of your forearm that's allowed to be in contact with the handlebars or, you know, it doesn't even say if it has to be the entire forearm. So, you know, really, I think the my point with the article was, you know, I'm sure Jan Willem van Schip and Spico are sitting at home going, well, 
How come all these other writers can ride with their forearms touching the handlebars and we get punished? I'm amazed we've not seen like other riders who were racing that race or even not racing at that race, but professional calling this out. It does seem that there isn't so much uh, uproar about it. Even the UCI don't seem to have stepped in yet from what I've seen to say yay or nay, why this is right, why it's, why it's not right. Because sometimes you get stuff like this, the UCI go, right, you got away with it today, that's it, this isn't allowed, but we've not seen that. But by the by the letter of the law, it isn't allowed. Like I, I'm actually, I'm kind of surprised that, that they didn't clamp down on it because the rule literally says you can't use your forearms on the handlebars. Like that's, it's written into the rules. And if you've put padding on the tops of your bars for your forearms, clearly you're using them. <laughs> like I, I'm not saying that the rule is a good rule. I think the rule is kind of stupid in this case, but it's a rule. And this is this is my issue with the UCI more generally is that like, They've got rules that sometimes are rules and sometimes are suggestions or just ignored entirely. Or like, is he going to ride this thing for six months and then at the Tour de France get disqualified? Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, clearly this is the sort of thing where the UCI is in a little bit of a pickle in trying to, and they're going to have to clarify this somehow, right? Um, because it's essentially, by my understanding, what they were trying to do with uh, with that breakaway bar, I, I guess the, the concerns with that are the rider didn't have enough control, supposedly, right? Like that was sort of like the main argument against it. And in this case, this situation seems to be that, you know, the, the, the bars are still like a relatively normal width and he still has his hands on the hoods, which granted you did on that breakaway bar also. Um, but because I think to me, it seems like less of the, like it was really, it's really almost more like just Tim Wellen's wrists, like, like almost like, like just behind his wrists are on the bar. Cause I mean, the, the top of the bar just isn't that long. Um, but this is clearly something that the UCI is going to have to clarify because again, this is not a new position at all. And yes, while he did have that area, area of his bar kind of built up with extra padding of some sort, there have been various incarnations of additional padding for drop bars for decades. And like, like, I don't really understand. They're just going to have to clarify it somehow. It's, it's usually for comfort, though, with regards to like the cobbled classics when you get people sticking two layers of bar tape up for, yeah, w w when they hit the cobbles. This one's all, he's clearly gone out of his way to make it comfortable and secure for when he's in that position. And I reckon it's, if, if he's going to do it, there's, we're going to see a couple more guys down the street do it. Uh, down the road, do it at other races, and I think this is when we're going to see the UCI step in when things get a little bit too um, too crazy with it, or when you're seeing, yeah, guys in breakaways all the time using it. And I think that's just it stinks a bit because realistically, the UCI should just clamp down straight away. It's a rule done, done and dust with it. I, I I don't actually think that the UCI need to clamp down in this. I think they just need to clarify the rule. The rule was brought in to. You know, outlaw the puppy paws position, which you know it's it's very difficult to argue that that is a safe position to adopt, especially when you're you know at the front or in a peloton full of riders. To not have your hands holding the handlebars anywhere, you know that is just a bit. You know, the accidents can happen with that. What Tim Wellens is doing, I don't see there really being an issue with it. I think the issue has arisen because the UCI wanted to outlaw outlaw puppy paws, but the new rule is so vague that outlaws more than it was intended to do so so you know they could have said you can't 
I'm not. I'm sure it would have to be some sort of legal speak, but draping your handlebar, your hands over the front of your handlebars, is not permitted. The, uh, the UCI, the UCI regulations don't do legal speak, and that's actually part of the problem. Well, it seems like the UCI is very consistently good at deciding what they don't like, but they're not generally often very good at being extremely specific and explicit about exactly why they don't like something. And I think that's part of the issue as well. Is that you know, I think if we were being honest here, part of the problem with the Speco bars is that they don't look traditional, let's say. Um, you know, you could adopt a normal hand position on the hoods. You could drop, adopt a normal hand position in the drops with those bars. The problem was you could also, you know, adopt a position where you, all your forearms is in contact with the bars, and that doesn't look traditional, so to speak. Um, and I, I do think that's, you know, a, a big part of the issue. I had some other points as well, but I can't remember what it is now. I mean, like, all it would take to fix this rule is remove the part that bans forearm contact and instead just require that your hands are on the bars in some way. Well, you know, right? we, we don't want to outlaw victory celebrations. You know, writers <laughs> should be able to post up their hands. So it does require a bit of finessing on exactly the wording of the law. But um, Not allowed to you eat. Know, we Can't actually, take a jacket off. <laughs> Uh, uh, Cycling Ireland actually brought in this rule a couple of years previous to the to the UCI doing so. I think the issue there was that we had a couple of issues in underage races with crashes where riders were adopting public ball position and were in a couple of crashes. And you know, Cycling Ireland moved to ban it. Now they 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 banned it across all racing, including you know elite category that I was racing in. The first thing I did was uh, put on a longer stem, drop my levers a little bit down the drops, and angled them inwards, which Wellens has also done. And you can still get into that same position where you've, you've got the horizontal forearms, which is the biggest benefit here. Yes, getting your arms narrower is also an aerodynamic gain, but to get them horizontal is is the big, the big thing here. Right. But to me, I, I feel like there's a couple of issues that I think, my again, my understanding is that the UCI took primary issue with. It was essentially the, 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 the degradation in rider control, uh, basically because those types of bars are so narrow. Uh, and also because so much of the forearm was supported that you could essentially maintain that position forever. Um, so, so to me, it seems like if the UCI really wanted to crack down on this, and of course, there's always ways around the rules typically, um, but if they really wanted to crack down on this, they could specify a certain bar width, like a bar width limitations relative to some sort of rider measurement. Like they, they could just dictate that. Right. They do that with all sorts of other uh, bike fit sort of things. And then the issue with the and Ronan, you certainly have spent obviously a hell of a lot more time in a TT position than I have. I haven't been on TT bar since high school, I think. Um, but to me, good man, James, good, good man. <laughs> but to me, the uh, the the issue with that Spico bar is, you know, if you think of your forearm as sort of a, a, a lever and you have your upper arm pushing down on your elbow. Right. And your your hand is holding on to the hood. So depending on where your forearm is resting on that handlebar, that kind of determines how much how much effort you have to put in to maintain that position, right? So if you have an armrest pad essentially closer to the elbow, or I guess further back and midway along your forearm roughly, then you can essentially just rest your upper body on that indefinitely with pretty minimal effort, right? However, if that fulcrum point where your forearm is resting on the bar is forward of that roughly halfway point on your forearm, then you still have to hold on. You still have to maintain control in your hands. And there still is quite a lot of core effort required to maintain that position. 
So I guess to me, if they wanted to be very specific in figuring out how to, how to clarify this rule somehow, then you'd have some sort of body measurement related bar width rule, which probably would have to involve some sort of angulation in that lever hood position. And you'd have to have something that talks about where, where along the forearm, your, where along the, your, the forearm that contact is with the bar. Because then that would still allow for regular drop bars, but it would preclude people from making something like a Spico. And then you'd also have fairly, like, fairly defined measurements as to what's good and what's not good. That's how I would do it anyway. That's also how the FAA would do it, but it's probably not how the UCI are going to do it. <laughs> That's too reasonable. All right, let's move, let's move on from handlebars. I don't think this is the last time we're going to run into this this year. We'll keep an eye on it for you, obviously, and let you know whether Tim Wellens is, still has padding on the top of his bars. Let's run through some other quick news highlights here. At Algarve, we had a couple a couple key stage winners, I'd say. Fabio Jakobsen took, was it two stages, Ronan? Yeah, stage one and three off the top of my head. And then Remco Venepol also took that time trial in impressive fashion. Now, we, Ronan, you wrote a, a, a story about his new position and some power stuff that ended up on Strava temporarily until he, until he removed it. He's got shorter cranks on. Let's keep this discussion short, but he's got shorter cranks on. Explain to me why I would want shorter cranks on my time trial bike. Uh, he's running shorter cranks because that allows him to, you know, by, by also moving his saddle position, uh, presumably slightly upwards, he can achieve the same pedal uh, knee extension. So he's got the same reach in his pedal stroke. But because the shorts are actually, or the cranks are actually shorter, his his thigh and his knee doesn't come as close to his body on the upstroke, basically. And that, you know, keeps the hip angle open ever so slightly more, which can actually make quite a big difference in either maintaining the same position and in a more comfortable uh, setup, or by allowing the rider to actually get their torso lower. And a lower tor torso angle is directly related to being more aerodynamic in most cases. Sometimes if your shoulders widen, it's less aero, but more often than not, uh, your torso angle can be directly linked to your, your aerodynamics in, in a time trial position. And it looked like he raised, well, maybe just the hand grips part of his bar. Like they're a little bit higher. I mean, it's closer to like, well, it's closer to that praying mantis, praying mantis position that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago that allows him to see better. I wouldn't say that he could see well, now but he can see better than with the previous position which is good always a good thing when you can see where you're going uh, and, and in theory faster <laughs> <laughs> he, he has is a changed sort of the angle of his hands more so than anything else in that before they were what appeared to be a very dynamic aerodynamic setup uh, they were slightly they were almost horizontal you know his thumbs and the tops of his hands and the time drop position were almost horizontal what he's done now is he's angled the, the palms of the hands closer together and it also seemingly has has raised his his fingers up further in front of him. Now, when you look at the two positions, you would presume that the older one is more aerodynamic, but that just goes to show you that or show us that you know the the wind tunnel in our eyes is not always as accurate as the wind tunnel that uh, Remco has access to. Uh, and yeah, seemingly this new position has has certainly not slowed him down anyway. He won the time trial by more than or he won the time trial by fifty eight seconds ahead of. 
Stefan Kung, who is himself one of the best time trialists on the planet, won the European Championships last year, narrowly missed out in the bronze medal at the Olympics. The 390 watts that he put out for how like an hour has probably helped as well. Yeah, that you know, he had 392 watts for 38 minutes on his travel. If I know, you know, who knows if that was 100% accurate or or what, but he was certainly putting out huge watts. He is, you know, a relatively small chap anyway. Uh, then he folds himself into that time trial position, like some sort of a contortionist, and puts out almost or seemingly the same watts as he can do in a road position. And that is why he is so fast on, on a time trial bike. He's, you know, one of the most aerodynamic riders there is. And then he's obviously got huge watts as well. I'm, I'm not going to stand over the 392 watts and say that's 100% accurate. <laughs> Who knows? But he did feel you know, strongly enough about it that he decided to hide the power. Uh, so there's there's some element of truth in it. I, I do have a little bit of intel knowing that there was a few riders that uh, go off to California this year and use specialised uh, wind tunnel. I'm guessing he was one of them. There's a, a, a very strong chance that he must be one of them. There's a few from uh, the specialised teams that women, the specialised team, uh, there was a few women from specialised teams and then there was a few men as well. There wasn't a, a, a many people, but yeah, I'd be very surprised if he wasn't one of them. I'd be also uh, interested to know who is, who's who been helping him, who ex uh, outside of specialised with his previous fit to this fit. Because it, it's one of the more, um, not drastic, but one of the more noticeable changes in a position we've seen in um, a long, long time. I would say it's probably just an, an evolution of his own position with specialised. It's kind of easy to forget that he, this is his fourth year as a pro, if I remember right. And he's been with Quickstep and Specialized from day one. So I would, you know, we we hear year after year how involved Specialized are in their bike setups for their supported teams. So I would imagine that you know it's an evolution rather than a than a whole new position. And I suppose when he was yeah junior under twenty three, it wasn't a, a massive thing that he needed to look into because he trounced everybody anyway. <laughs> The first time I heard about him was he had lapped the field at the European Championships and won by eight or nine minutes solo. So <laughs> I think he was probably pretty good at time trials back then. <laughs> All right, let's move on from let's move on from Remco. We got a couple of little news bits here. Uh, both Fabio Jakobsen and Mark Cavendish winning sprint stages. Uh, Jakobsen in Algarve and Cavendish at the UAE Tour. We could talk about this more later in the year, I think, but. Uh, this does present some interesting, an interesting conundrum for Patrick Lefebvre and as to which of those two sprinters he's going to end up bringing to the Tour de France. On one side, you've got essentially an up-and-comer, but probably the better sprinter, in theory, Fabio Jakobsen. And on the other side, well, the rider going for the, the Tour de France stage wins record, so clearly has the experience to get stage wins at the Tour in Mark Cavendish. I wonder which one he's going to go with. He said previously that Jakobsen is, is, the, is the option for the tour, but I sort of wonder if that's just him knowing Cavendish and knowing that telling Cav you can't do something is a really good way to make him race his bicycle fast. We don't need to go into that too much today. We're going to keep an eye on that one throughout the year. I, I, I'm intrigued to see how, how exactly they, they handle that. We've got a bit more news here. Trek Segafredo took back-to-back -back stage wins with Lisa Balsamo, the new world champion. Uh, her first, I think her first victory in the world champ stripes, right? 
Uh, and then Ellen van Dyke won stage two. And also at Valencia, Annemiek van Vluten was back after her really nasty Paris-Roubaix crash. So good to see her back in bike races once again. Four, four months after a fractured femur, and she won a mountaintop finish by a minute. So it's, it's pretty impressive stuff. It's super impressive stuff. Yeah, it's super impressive stuff. I mean, yeah, four months ago, she couldn't walk. She had a broken femur. She was laid up in bed. And Saturday? I can't remember. Yeah, one by a minute on a mountaintop finish. I think it's safe to say that Annemiek van Vluten is going to be back this year. <laughs> I don't know if there's any real concern over that, but it is good to see that she's back at her top level. Should, of course, say it wasn't a femur, was it? It was a pelvis and shoulder, but... Either way, she had a lot of injuries. That was my mistake. I'm I'm broken femur in the head at the moment with Bernal, and yeah, it's not mm. my femur that I broke, but it's legs are, it's are a big thing on my mind at the moment. Still, still serious injury, and still was like I said, laid up in the hospital for for quite some time. Some other great news. I mentioned this at the start of the show. Tour of Flanders is going to provide equal prize money for both the men's and women's races. This is a big deal, and it's a it's it's excellent. And the Tour of Flanders. And specifically Flanders Classics, which runs the Tour of Flanders and a bunch of other races around that time of year, have, have made some real efforts on this front over the last couple of years. They've been at sort of the forefront of really good TV coverage, sometimes, most of the time. Uh, not always, I should say. But they've made a, they've made a lot of strides uh, in their support of women's racing, and this is the latest step in that. So great to see. We've got on the run sheet here David Lepartien is elected to the IOC. Now, I don't really want to dig into this <laughs> too far. See, I, I was uh, going to laugh uh, before. Uh, Sorry, Kate, I was going to laugh before because I, I was just reading the run sheet while you were talking and you went, and some other great news. And I was like, oh, no, it's going to talk about David <laughs> Lepartian, isn't it? But luckily he went for the Flanders uh, equal prize money. <laughs> I mean, it. you know, like having the president of the, of the UCI elected to the IOC it could be a good thing, right? It's, it's, it's more power. Uh, it's, well, it's, it's an advocate within a body that has a lot of money and a lot of power in the world of international sport, and that could be seen as a good thing. It could also be seen as David Lepartiente has some real big ambitions, and I think that that's probably... Both, both of thing, those things can be true. And I don't think we need to spend too much time chatting about it today. That's probably worth that's probably worth a slightly deeper dive at some point uh, and some additional reporting. But we do know that David Lepartian has 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 big goals in front of him and big IOC goals. Um, and yeah, this is this is another step in that direction. The the sort of counter argument is that well, if he's dealing with IOC stuff, then he's going to be a less effective president of the UCI, and that would be unfortunate. But we don't honestly know. Uh, exactly how he balances his days these days. So the the people of uh, Sarzu and Western France might be pretty annoyed as well that he's taken on another job and you know has has perhaps less time to be their mayor. <laughs> oh yeah, it's true. Yeah, I always forget that he's the, the mayor of a small town in Western France. Uh, oh, a few. He's doing all right. Anyway, we'll leave that there. Just a quick news blurb. Uh, another quick note: Joe Lindsay, our favorite Joe Lindsay. Uh, put together a How to Watch Cycling in the U.S. post for us last week. If you haven't checked this out, go do so. It's great. There's a big sort of chart table thing 
for how to watch basically every single race in the men's world tour, women's world tour, uh, I think down to 1.1. Um, anyway, most of the races you're going to want to watch are on there. Some of them don't have live coverage, unfortunately, particularly on the women's side, but uh, that's been noted. And it's just a really, really clean, efficient way to figure out where to watch bike racing if you're in the United States. So I know a lot of our listeners are American. Go check that out. I think if you Google like how to watch cycling in the US, cycling tips, it'll definitely pop up. And check that one out. Bookmark it for later in the year. Finally, before we get to Nerd Nugget, opening weekend is this weekend. Omloop is here. This is what everybody in Belgium has been looking forward to since Paris Bay last year. You know, it's the return of the semi-classic cobbled classics uh, and the real start of the season, at least as far as Belgians are concerned. Uh, and yeah, for me, in a way, it's, it's super exciting racing. You got Het Newsblad, or as I like to call it, Het Volk, because that's what it used to be called, <laughs> and current. I mean, at current some point, we have to update. We have to update. We have to start calling races what they, what they're actually called. We got Hopevar and Headfolk, and no, it makes me sound old and experienced. So I'm going to keep calling it Headfolk. Okay, you do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's an awesome week weekend of racing. It's obviously uh, it's it's a little mini Flanders uh, this weekend for both men and the women. Uh, lots of the same cobble climbs. Obviously, a bit shorter. That's the, that's essentially the main difference. About 50, 60 kilometers shorter, uh, and cursed. We mention this every year. If you win Omloop, you ain't winning Flanders. So let's find out who gets cursed this weekend. I forget what the stat is now. Nobody's won Omloop and Flanders for like ever or like 50 years or something like that. Anyway, it's a long time. <laughs> I, I can't remember because when I think winning, Fla- or winning Omloop, the only thing I can think of is Ian Stannard beating three quick steppers uh, while he was on his own. That was It just- was... Superb. Also, he didn't win Flanders that year, so the curse. But he did have the classiest win of the season by far. I mean, it's it's a win that stands on its own anyway, and, and often the winners will go on to do great things at Flanders and Roubaix later in their career, right? Because let's be honest, you, you can't really fully peak for the end of February and sort of the middle of April, beginning beginning of April. That's a very difficult thing to do, and so. You know, the the biggest riders, the riders who are looking to win the Tour of Flanders are probably not at their best right now. And you get some, get some, like I said, up-and-comers. The the, the riders that are going to be really good in in a couple years, they'll often try to hit Omloop as hard as they possibly can. That's obviously why I'm sitting here today was because the last time I was due to do Kern Brussels Kern, it was cancelled due to snow. So, you know... Obviously, had it not been cancelled, I could have had my breakthrough performance there. And, that would have been just... <laughs> and you would never, you would never have been able to make this podcast with us. You would have been off. The, the other two DNFs that I have occurred, you know, they count for nothing. That was, it we'll was 2013 was going to be the year. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just ignore them. Anyway, we will talk more about Onloop next week. We'll talk all about it. Men's, men's race, women's race, all kinds of good stuff. And opening weekend, classics are here. Pretty exciting. But let's leave that for now and head over to Nerd Nugget. Okay, one last thing I want to mention, since we were just talking about opening weekend, uh, does this mean we are now going to be moving the podcast to Mondays? I think it does, actually. Well, recording on Mondays, which means U.S. audience, you'll get it on probably Tuesday morning when you wake up. But yes, 24 hours earlier, so we can talk about the bike racing as quickly as possible. All right, let's... 
Let's dive into Nerd Nugget here. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. James? Nerd alert. What are we talking about? Well, today, Pearl Izumi, uh, they announced a couple of things. They completely revamped their line of shorts for, I guess, spring, summer 22, I guess is what the season's called. A um, couple of interesting features, uh, one of which is they incorporated finally this drop tail thing into a men's short, men's bib short, which as far as I'm aware has not been used before. It's been pretty common in women's shorts now. Um, we're going to get into that subject in more depth on uh, the next nerd, uh, on the next nerd alert group show. Uh, what I really want to talk about is this new chamois that they introduced. They call it this levitate line of chamois. But um, the thing that I really have gotten to thinking about is, as we all know, I am old, quite a bit older than everyone else on the show here. Well, hold on, and... not that much older, mate. Don't don't knock yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm old enough to to remember that when I first got into riding. So wait, uh, just to back up a little bit. So this levitate chamois, it's has like thicker density or higher density foam. It's a little bit thicker, not that much thicker, but it has a higher density foam. So essentially it is effectively thicker than what you have in a lot of chamois that are out there that, out there right now that have really thin or really soft foam that kind of just packs out when you sit on it. Um, so essentially what Perlazumi is claiming with this levitate line is that it has a little bit more comfort, a little bit like more like built-in suspension, so to speak. Um, but it really got me thinking to how when I first started riding, it really wasn't too long after the transition from natural chamois to synthetic ones. And back then, the synthetic ones were like they very much mimicked natural chamois in the sense that it was basically just sort of like a thin layer of stuff that was supposed to be like non-chafing. And it was basically just meant to reduce friction. There wasn't any wasn't really any aim to to provide comfort or padding. And now we have this situation where shorts everywhere have all sorts of thick foams in there. Like the pads are massive. It's like even when they're good, like it's, you, it essentially it's like you're wearing a diaper. Like some of them are really like nicely fitting diapers, but like it's, you're still walking around with a fair bit of stuff underneath your butt. Um, but going along with that, we now have all these super lightweight saddles, or I guess going yeah going along with that, we have these super lightweight saddles, which maybe precipitated the move toward adding all this padding in the shorts. Because as the padding went away in the saddles, we added more padding into the shorts. But Kaylee, as you can attest, having ridden a whole bunch of, uh, having spent a whole bunch of time in something like, like that specialized power mirror saddle, um, like a lot of these new 3D printed saddles, essentially what's really nice about them is that they're really thick and heavily padded, which arguably has a lot to do with what makes them comfortable. Should we just put the padding back in the saddle again instead of just having them in the shorts? I think so. I mean, if 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 the the three D printed mirror saddle is anything to go by, then yeah, it's 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 very effective, uh, and you don't feel like you're wearing a diaper, which is it, good. Don't like it, wearing a diaper, and it makes every pair of shorts comfortable at that point almost. Yeah, I mean that that's the other nice thing, right? Is like unless unless a pair of shorts is chafing you, then you're not you're not actually worried about the sort of quality of the padding and the and the what weight distribution. Basically, you're just you're just worried about you know, our seams in the right place, which means that more shorts can have the opportunity to be good shorts, basically. I think it does. I think it all just comes down to your, your own personal derriere. Like I've got, and I've, I have got them 3d printed saddles. I've got, um, a, a power mirror like UK and I absolutely love it. I've used it with thin pads and thick pads and realistic. It's not, it's not that much difference between the two. And then I've got a nice, another satellite I highly recommend is the Syncross McClaver, I think it is. Not 3D printed, 
to not got to cut out anything like that. And again, I don't really think about what shorts I'm putting on pad-wise. It's, it, this is surely all down to personal preference rather than sticking extra foam in a saddle, taking it out of a saddle, sticking it in a, a chamois. All down to personal preference. What about just no chamois? What about no chamois at all? The Tim Johnson method. Nay. Tim Johnson used to ride without a chamois? Still rides without a chamois. I, well, I don't know if he still does. I was at a, um, a Mavic press launch with him a couple years ago. When he, I don't know if he's still, I don't think he's still a like ambassador for them. But anyway, we were in Perpignan, I think. Uh, it's all these trips run together. Anyway, it was a, it was a gravel, <clears throat> it was a gravel launch and we had a big ride one day and Tim said that he doesn't wear a chamois. So he didn't show me or anything. So I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't confirm it. You, you didn't stick, you didn't stick your hand down there to verify. <laughs> but nope, he said no chamois in there. Where's he getting cycling shorts with no chamois? Was he off down like the local dance jazz funk shop or something like this? He's just, he's just wearing, he's just wearing baggies and I assume underwear of some sort. You hope. Maybe he's got some whitey tighties going on down there. I don't know. Tim, if you listen to this I'm, podcast, send me a text and let me know what you're wearing underneath those shorts. No, Ronan, what, what are your thoughts on this? I'm curious. No photos. I, I was just about to say, I'm actually a fan of a rather thin chamois and thin padding on the saddle. So perhaps I'm not the best voice on this, uh, given that I, I, I just like being in contact and being able to feel the bike beneath me. I've never enjoyed really thick chamois, partly also because I feel that they adjust my saddle height ever so slightly and I need to then drop my saddle and then when I go back to thinner padding and a different pair of shorts, I need to raise it back up again. So for that reason, yeah, I've just never really got into them. But I did have to suffer the injustice of having to test those ASOS tights recently. Uh, <laughs> and I, I say that with the highest degree of sarcasm possible. Uh, but they were, you know, the, the, the Xiaomi on them is, I, I haven't seen this pair of Zoomy one, but I can't imagine it could be thicker than those at, at, at the contact points on the on the ASOS chamois it was it's just insane how big that is and you know it, it you know I have to admit I actually did enjoy that it was it was it was really comforting and and uh, the added padding certainly you know improved the comfort of the tights and whatever way ASOS have built it into the the tights that it, it didn't it didn't uh, you sort of droop and, and move about when I got into the saddle which was the bigger issue I had with big pads previously uh, so I think we're getting to a place where, you know, we can we can incorporate a bigger padding into the Xiaomi and, you know, the structure of the shorts can actually maintain that Xiaomi in position underneath us. And I, I think that's a key point. Now, as I said, I haven't seen these pair of Zoomy ones. I, you know, it only just went up this morning. I haven't even got a chance to read the article yet. So, uh, I, you know, I, I guess, James, have you seen how, you know, they're built into the shorts or anything? Or can you answer anything to that? Because I think that's, for me, that's the bigger issue than actually how much comfort is built into either the saddle or the Xiaomi. It's just that, you know, the Xiaomi can actually maintain position and isn't moving about underneath the rider. It doesn't, I will say having used these, uh, they sent a couple couple of different pairs of samples uh, several weeks ago. So I've been using them a decent amount. And I will say, I actually wrote this in the article too, that while the pad is quite thick, um, they have done a really good job of, of having it conform to your body quite well. Like it really doesn't move underneath you like it's it's basically just sort of stuck there which i think is kind of how it should be um so you don't really have the sense of um 
kind of like that super vague feeling underneath you. Like you're not really, uh, like, like there's just sort of like all this movement underneath you. Um, but there, there is a, definitely a sense of padding. Um, but again, like, I guess my question, I, you know, like, uh, Rodan, you mentioned that one of the issues with thicker, thicker chamois is that you sometimes do have to adjust your saddle height. And one of the issues I have with companies perpetually putting more padding in, in the, the chamois is unless you have multiple pairs of the exact same one, if you are particularly sensitive to your fit, you could potentially have to move your saddle up and down every time you switch shorts. I know I've, I know I've been there. Yeah. Whereas if you have the padding in the saddle and if the saddle is well, well, well shaped to you, if you know it fits and you know, it agrees with you and everything and, and the chamois kind of go back to being thinner, like they used to be, then you have that consistency there, right? Like you don't have to, even if you go to different brands of shorts, if everyone kind of had that same philosophy, then, you know, relying on the, on the saddle for the padding instead of the shorts, then you wouldn't really have that issue anymore. Yeah. Just the padding has to be good. Right. I mean, like I've had squishy saddles before that just sure, of course. Spots that's always the, the case. The foam's bad. Yeah, like I said, like that 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 sort of three D printed stuff is the first soft saddle that I've I've used in years that I actually liked. To return to something that Ronan said, which is that he likes not very much padding on the saddle or the shorts. I think a lot of it comes down to sort of how you ride and how much weight distribution you've got on various other parts of the bike. Right? You know, there's three contact points. You've got feet, butt, and hands. If you're got more pressure on your hands, that's less on your butt. And if you've got more pressure on your feet, that's less on your butt, right? So like the harder you pedal in theory, the less your butt is just sitting on, on saddle. So, you know, Ronan right now doesn't pedal very hard, but has in the past pedaled quite hard. And that's probably a big part of the reason why, you know, but between, between, you know, putting out a decent amount of power and having a fair amount of weight on his hands is probably a big part of the reason why you can get away with less padding on your butt and, or on a saddle. Like I I like very different saddles for my mountain bike versus my road bike, for example, because on my road bike, I have a lot more weight on my hands than on my mountain bike where I'm kind of sitting more upright. I'm just, I'm just plopped in the saddle. I'm often not riding as hard and I've just got more weight on my butt. And I like having a little bit more padding back there in those circumstances. So it does depend, you know, on your position, on the type of bike that you're riding, on the type of rider that you are, all these things play into sort of how to get comfortable and, and how much padding you're going to need to get comfortable, I think. I think you're, there's definitely an element of that involved for me in a way in that, you know, it's much like pumping your tires too hard. It feels faster. The same with a hard saddle and a thin chamois. It just, you know, especially on the roads that I have around here, it feels fast. Um, so yeah, that's or, or definitely it, a bit of that play. It certainly just feels more until it feels less (laughs) so what i'm amazed at what we haven't seen so far is saddle brands and clothing brands partnering up and actually doing a joint effort at saying this is the perfect saddle short combination i can't say legos you just yeah exactly you you just kind of have though you kind of have just click in yeah you kind of have though because some bigger bigger brands certainly like specialized and trek have had their own range of clothing for for years and that they have said before that this pad is perfectly matched to their saddle shape, that sort of thing. And then physique several years ago, they had like were very, very explicit about um, actually matching specific short models to particular saddle models. Like they would have one for like, this is the short you should wear. If you ride an Aliante, this is the short you should ride. If you ride the Antara, so on and so forth. Um, so that that's already happened. I don't really know how effective that is, but again, I just can't find it 
kind of odd that you that you that you're kind of in this position when we could just I don't know take take the padding out of the short, put it back in the saddle, and find a saddle that works for you, and then every short every short should be okay. Just give me one of them leather pads right down there. Maybe mm. not leather. Maybe not actual yeah. leather. Yeah. Anyway, I love it. That that's my thought on the subject. All right, go out, go go forth, bike industry. Fix this problem for us. <laughs> Figure this one out. All right, let's wrap it up for today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope, I hope if you do enjoy this podcast that you're a Velo Club member by now. Uh, not trying to not trying to shame you or anything like that, but it does it does help support what we do here. It's a big part of the reason why we make these podcasts, why we can make these podcasts, why we make podcasts like Nerd Alert, for example, that doesn't have any ads in it. It's a huge part of Cycling Tips. So if you're not already a member, please consider joining up. Uh, these days, obviously, we've got that that paywall. So you probably hit the paywall at some point anyway. Take that opportunity to just sign up. It's pretty cheap. It's what, like 75 cents a week or something like that? It's really, really cheap. 75 cents. You like find that in your couch cushions. All right. <laughs> Let's wrap up for today. We'll be back next week with a full breakdown of opening weekend. I'm Lupet Newsblad. Hetvoke, perhaps, if you are old like Ronan. Join us. We'll be out a day earlier than we've been doing in the offseason. Because it's no longer the offseason, and that's exciting. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.